it's also a signal towards the general community, but also the Syrian community that they do have options to share their stories. They do have options to come forward with what happened to them and share evidence where possible. Medieval crimes are being committed. I come with clean hands. Victims of horrific crimes want justice. We don't have anything better than this. This is Asymmetrical Haircuts, your international justice podcast, with Janet Anderson and Stephanie Vandenberg. This episode was produced in partnership with justiceinfo.net. All rise. Hi, Steph. Hi, Janet. You know, what's been striking me yet again as we come to the end of 2023 is how many complex paths we have towards accountability that you and I are trying to keep an eye on. It was once upon a time when we were both pretty well fixated on a couple of big international tribunals. And then there was also this kind of slew of various courts that followed in their wake. And then the big behemoth, you know, the International Criminal Court with all of its expectations and effects and disappointments. But now we're really looking all over the world at national proceedings and all kinds of new ideas on how to pursue justice. Yeah, and for me here in the Netherlands, I also have the traditional big UN court, the International Court of Justice, the UN's highest court for disputes uh, between nations, which has become much, much more active in the past few years. And they have had a real focus um, that they're being used by activists to use the treaties that countries have signed up to challenge their response to mass atrocities. I was at the court yesterday and they told me, I think 50% of their cases came in the last 20 years or something. So it's really, really a very big rise. Yeah, for a slow moving court, that's a big change. Well, all of this is kind of in preview to today's show, which is all about Syria. I mean, that's a country that's been subject to some of the most severe international crimes, severe atrocities, but has really only seen a trickle of justice. And to talk through some of the latest developments on Syria, we have a couple of guests. We have Hope Rickelman. Hi, Hope. Good morning. Hope is the director of the Yazidi Legal Network and has also just been appointed the head of the Nuhanovic Foundation, where she was previously leading the Iraq and Syria project. Congratulations. We should explain a bit what the Nuhanovic Foundation does. On the website, it says it helps secure justice and reparations for civilian victims of war and conflict. In the Netherlands, we know it as one of the driving forces behind a really significant decision on reparations for victims of the Srebrenica massacres, for example. And we also have Fritz Streif. Hi, Fritz. Hi, good morning. And Fritz is a lawyer at the Nuhanovitz Foundation, uh, where he's leading the Ukraine work. And we also know Fritz from his work as fellow podcaster. Most recently, the Syria trials and before that, Branch 251, which are really great in-depth guides in English and in Arabic to the trials that have been happening in Germany and beyond on Syria under universal jurisdiction. So to start with, I thought, Steph, you could help us with a basic understanding of the case at the International Court of Justice in The Hague, which has been brought by Canada and the Netherlands, I think, against Syria, which is saying that Syria isn't living up to its obligations under the torture convention. So Stephapedia away. Yes, well, Canada and the Netherlands started kind of laying the groundwork for this case in 2020, uh, when the Netherlands announced that it was holding Syria legally responsible for uh, breaches of the torture convention. And that's kind of preamble that you have to walk through uh, to make sure that you signal that there is a dispute and then try to go into negotiations before it kind of escalates when those negotiations go nowhere. And only then can you take a case to the International Court of Justice. The case was finally filed earlier this year 
And Canada and the Netherlands immediately asked the court to rule on provisional measures, which are kind of like emergency staying measures where you get the court to order something so that the case doesn't get worse while it takes a while for them to hear it. So Canada and the Netherlands asked the court to order Syria essentially to stop torturing. I remember I was watching to see what was going to happen in the proceedings and Syria didn't actually turn up. Is that right? That's right. Uh, Syria apparently was negotiating to turn up and they even asked for a delay at some point where we had a hearing that was delayed again. And then when it Moment Supreme came, they didn't show up in court. So we heard only one side, which uh, was the Dutch and the, and the Canadians and the Syrian victims talking about what happened to them. And a couple of weeks ago, the court decided that provisional measures were in order and that Syria basically essentially must do everything it can to stop torture and ensure that nobody under its control can torture. Well, we all know the problem with the ICJ is that they they have a wide-ranging jurisdiction and they can order all these things, but they have no way of enforcing this. So those provisional measures are regularly flaunted. I mean, they also ordered Russia to stop the invasion of Ukraine. They did the same with Syria. They are now ordering it to stop torturing, but we don't know what's going to happen. And it doesn't seem like Syria is paying a lot of attention. What's the big significance of this? I mean, why pay any attention to it? Well, it is the first international court to basically rule on anything Syria related. The crimes in Syria are blocked from going to the International Criminal Court because Russia and China voted against it in the Security Council to have a resolution to refer that case. Obviously, the Syrian Assad government is not going to prosecute itself for the things that it allegedly does. So that means that there's really no accountability for Syria. And we've seen some universal jurisdiction cases in countries, but uh, the weight of international judges in an international court really looking at it is a different kind of beast. So let's uh, bring our hope and uh, Fritz in here. Agree, disagree? What do you make of the ICJ's involvement? I guess just if if, uh, I can jump in there and start, I I think it's a really good signal, right, that states are involved in talking about accountability and being very creative. This is something that Fritz and I have discussed quite often in, in these cases, you know, when there are impossibilities before, for instance, the ICC or other um, mechanisms or avenues, you really have to stay creative. And I think that this is one of the examples of that. And um, and having the Netherlands and Canada be involved in this is also a really good statement of saying you have to abide by our conventions that we address together. You know, to add to that, the fact that Syria is a signatory to the torture convention to begin with since 2004, um, you know, is, is I guess somewhat surprising, um, but it does bind them. And I want to push back a little bit on, on something you said, Stephanie, which is, I think, the the fact that the Syrian government did actually uh, participate in the negotiations, uh, met with the arbiters and the, the other governments multiple times, exchanged dozens of, of uh, diplomatic uh, notes on the issues, shows that there is engagement from the Syrian government, that it takes the process seriously. The reason that it didn't show up um, is unknown. It, of course, was a disappointment. Let's Let's be clear on that. But the engagement, I think, shows that they take it seriously and that a decision that would come in at some point would actually be also a, a, a political pressure tool to, to work with for, for other governments in discussions and, and negotiations with the Syrian government in the future as regards transitional justice in, in Syria in the two, five, ten 
20 years to come. Um, and that is not to be underestimated, I think. Yeah, and we have to say that uh, even if they don't show up for provisional measures, that happens uh, more often, and it doesn't mean that they won't eventually participate in um, hearings. It's just that it's it's a long way off. Okay, so let's uh, move on, and let me ask you both, uh, Fritz and Hope, about the case that just opened in the uh, Hague District Court at the end of November. I'm going to hand it over to you, Hope, to tell me basically what it's all about. For us, this was a very exciting moment, right? Um, we have a 35-year-old Syrian who is indicted or accused of crimes against humanity and also war crimes, as well as participating in Liva al-Quds. And one of the um, indictments of the public prosecutor's office is that Liva al-Quds is part of the pro-regime Assad government and um, that these activities fall under a part of you know, the systematic attacks of the civilian populations. And I, I think that that's just a really, really good signal towards the Syrian community here, specifically in the Netherlands, but also, you know, across the world that the Netherlands specifically is not a safe haven. We've been working on this for years. So that was very exciting for us to be able to, to get to this point. And Fritz, what did you notice, especially if you look at how this is different from the cases that you found or similar to, to the cases that you, you followed in Germany? I think one element that, that is really striking uh, and that is similar to uh, a lot of the other cases we've been seeing, not only in Germany, but um, also being developed in, in mostly other European countries, but also the United States. But we've, we've been seeing activity in Sweden and France very much lately, um, in, in Austria, um, in a bunch of European jurisdictions where we're seeing that the involvement of Syrian civil society, along with with their partners in in Western countries, um, has been absolutely crucial to get these cases off the ground, um, and to use this opportunity, this tool of universal jurisdiction in these national states, instead of addressing their own justice system in Syria, which which of course is unfit to administer any any type of fair justice. Um, and in, in in the absence of of the International Criminal Court, which of course has been blocked by the by the vetoes in the Security Council, um, same goes for a specialized tribunal, which which never came for the same reason. So it's been that trend, right? That civil society has been really pushing to use universal jurisdiction to get these cases off the ground, and that the fact that we're seeing them go to trial uh, in an increasing number since 2020, when the the first trial in Copeland started is, I think, a, a great testament to the tireless efforts of these groups, especially the Syrian, uh, our Syrian partners, because let's, let's be clear, the frustrations were huge after uh, almost 10 years of no criminal trial regarding any of these uh, regime crimes that, that have been committed in, in Syria. Each time I come across one of these trials, I kind of think, okay, this is it. This is the start. You know, now the kind of sluice gates are going to open and we're just going to see tons and tons of these cases. Hope, am I mad? I mean, is this kind of the first of many? I mean, do you, do you imagine there'll be more or am I just a bit too optimistic? To be honest, I, I think I, I like to also stay optimistic. Um, so I share those thoughts with you. I think that if you take into consideration how precedent-setting these cases are, especially in the Netherlands, if you look at the indictment, the public prosecutor also is qualifying Liva Okuts as a criminal organization whose purpose is to commit international crimes. And the case itself, I think in that sense, it is very much the doors towards the next cases 
um, in setting these precedents. And I think that's really in, important for the legal framework. So I definitely agree with this. It's also a signal towards the community, right? The general community, but also the Syrian community that they do have options to share their stories. They do have options to come forward with what happened to them and share evidence where possible. So I, I think in that light, it's also a really good signal I've been in touch with quite a few Syrians here in the Netherlands that sent me messages after the two hearings this week. Just total praise and happy that something was being done and that they were they had some kind of hopeful hopeful view of the future in in talking about accountability and justice. So I think in that sense it's also very much um a good step forward. And you know there's 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 two things sort of that that are, that are good to keep in mind I think. One is that the justice process just I mean, it's unfortunate, but it's 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 just the way it is. Is a lot slower than uh, than the political process. They, they, you know, these these things happen at very different speeds. And I think it is right, Janet, what you're saying that with the Copeland's trial uh, that started in 2020, it was a first of of, of many to come. And uh, like we said, in in, in multiple uh, national jurisdictions, cases really de developing or going to trial, um, arrest warrants being issued. Um, now, another thing that I think is good to keep in mind is these national jurisdictions are, of course, not perfect. And, you know, Stephanie, you asked for sort of comparative uh, observations of, of how these trials have been going, right? And I think, um, yes, it is, you know, bizarre that the first criminal trial against the Syrian regime uh, or against representatives of the Syrian regime would happen in a country, uh, sorry, in a, in, a, in a city called Koblenz in Germany that probably nobody had ever heard of before um, in German, and it was difficult to access the court. And, you know, it was COVID, there was a global pandemic. And those those circumstances are, are definitely not perfect. But I think that trial with its 108 trial days was was a really good, at the end of the day, clean exercise of, of justice. And as Hope said, it meant so much to Syrians to finally be heard by a court of law in the whole framework of a functioning rule of law system where the accused would have the right to defend himself, where the entire process uh, was executed according to a set of rules that makes sense and is not arbitrary. And the same goes for the for, for the trial that we've now seen in, in The Hague in the past couple of days. You know, it's, it's very different. There was only two final hearing uh, days, very different from the German system, uh, much less of an opportunity to really go through the entire exercise and 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 show not only to the participating parties but also to the world what what the whole case is about so there's these differences um, but i think the general thing to keep in mind is that for it to be that sort of third best option i think they're doing a really good job and um there is more coming maybe we'll, we can talk about that in a second what we're expecting to see in, in the next uh, few years but i think it'll be it'll be it'll be good and it, it'll be a, a slow but continuous process of building Building a strong dossier of of evidence, also for for future purposes of of, of history writing and, and, and archiving, that will make very clear what what the regime did in Syria. And hope I just want to get back to you. Um, I wanted to ask you if you can explain a bit how the court case went, what you followed, what they said, and why this is kind of a new thing for the Netherlands, because we've had other trials of war crimes in Syria, but this one stands out. And can you explain why? And can you maybe give us a little recounting of what those two days were like? Yeah, absolutely. Maybe just to begin with the fact that the, you know, the pre-trial phase was a very long period 
Um, I don't know exactly by heart how long it was, but I, I know for sure um, a lot of the pre-trial hearings I went to, I think over a time frame of about a year, maybe a year and a half, and uh, very much leading up to these two trial hearing days, which Fritz already mentioned, like that's it's something very specific in the Netherlands that the hearing days or the trial days themselves are very specific towards the public prosecutor explaining what the uh, charges are um, and what the facts are of the case and then having the charges explained sorry after that there is an option for the for the witnesses and the uh, direct victim to have a victim statement so i think that that's also very very good in the netherlands that they take the room and space and opportunity to be able to say something about the crimes that were committed against them, uh, what that means personally for them, but also to say something about um, the charges specifically. Before you dive into the case, Hope, let me just explain the Dutch system. As you explained, they have very long kind of pretrial hearings where they talk all about what they investigate. And then the trial itself in the Netherlands is usually only a few days. And what you get essentially is the judges reading from the dossier of investigation. And so you don't get witnesses testifying live in court. But what you do get is judges kind of reading from witness statements, from testimony, from reports and putting these things to the defense. And in this case, also the defendant and asking them, you know, we found all this. What is your comment? Uh, in this case, I don't think he commented on anything but that's the way a Dutch trial works. It's not at all like uh, the American movies and there's usually not a lot of drama. And all the quotes and all the color you get from uh, victims who testify is all from judges quoting from that. So that is to set the scene and now hope you can dive into what happened in those two days. I only saw a bit of the first day and that was a lot of uh, judges reading from the file and him saying, I rely on my right to remain silent. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And uh, maybe um, maybe just to add on to that is that um, in the pretrial phase, the investigative judge does the hearings of the witnesses and the survivors, the victims. So that's that's a really important phase as well, which we were quite involved in, in the sense that we were trying to support the, the victims and the survivors um, and also the, the organizations behind that. For the first trial day specifically, One thing that was was very powerful and and very important for us as an organization also to highlight was the statement of the victim. So the, the victim was not present, unfortunately, and maybe Fritz can explain that a little bit in a second. But I think that having that room and space within the trials in the Netherlands is very important for them to explain what this means to them, what their life looks like now and and. You know, they can also say something even about the charges and the length of the potential prison sentence. So I think that was those were the main points for the first day. And the second day was very much in light of the defendant explaining why they didn't agree with uh, with the charges of the public prosecutor's office. I think that the judges should have a verdict on the 22nd of January. So even even looking at that process, it's very quick. So a lot of the um, the momentum of the trial uh, was very much before the trial itself, very much in the pre-trial phases. And, and before we move on to what else we can expect this year, uh, I asked Fritz already about the difference between Dutch and, and German courts, and you talked a lot about the process. But I'm wondering, what about the practicalities the Dutch had 
translation. They had a live stream, which is what I watched. And I'm wondering, was that as I remember complaints uh, in the Koblenz trial that it was hard to follow for victims? So I'm, I'm wondering, did that warm your heart to see that here? And uh, it, was that very different from how they did it in Germany? It, it warmed my heart. And, it, and in a way, it, it blew my mind. In fact, um, it's not an exaggeration. And, and not the fact that accessibility to in-court interpretation to Arabic for Syrian uh, participants in the public gallery, um, but also in, in, in the live stream that the court um, made available and that we helped with the Nuhanovic Foundation to, to spread the word about and for, for Syrians all over the world to be able to tune in um, and follow and listen to the, to the live in-court interpretation. I mean, the fact that that was made possible and in the uh, let's say uh, relatively, uh, you know, practical Dutch Dutch way, there wasn't even nobody even had to file a motion uh, uh, in this regard. And not us, not the not the lawyers. Um, it was it was it was just in in conversation over the past few years um, between the prosecutor's office and us, together with our Syrian partner. We had that conversation. We requested this to be the case, and it was no problem. Which, in my opinion. It's not surprising because it is just that easy. What is mind blowing is that it wasn't possible in Koblenz, and that it that it took what was it three or four motions by civil society uh, organizations and and participating um, civil party lawyers to keep arguing for why it was necessary, not just for I mean clearly for for the participating uh, Syrians. Uh, but also for for documentation purposes, right? And for 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 archiving, for for being able to to make sure that the significance, the clear historic significance of of that trial would be would be recognized. I mean, mind blowing that that was until the very last day of the trial uh, that was upheld. On that very last day, they made the in court translation interpretation um, accessible to everyone in the public gallery, which showed that it was possible all along. So yeah, you're you're hearing my uh, my 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 lingering frustration. Um, I, I I appreciate we appreciate um, the 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 practical approach by the Dutch authorities, and and that's uh, should be a good example for jurisdictions uh, all over the world. Yeah, maybe maybe just to add on to that as well is is it would it's really a good example of supporting each other, right? I think one thing at the Nuhanovic Foundation we really believe in um, is not just access to justice. Um, for survivors and, and, and witnesses of international crimes, but um, more specifically being able to support each other. And I think that in this specific instance also that, um, and these are my own personal words, but I think that the public prosecutor office was also very happy with us in supporting that process, making sure we could provide the link to um, to the larger community and reach out and make sure that people knew that this link was accessible. Um, so I think that's also a really, really good step in the right direction. And let me just add, you know, Stephanie, because you, you know, you, you asked about, you know, comparisons and differences and stuff. And, and we both just confirmed, we, we, we appreciate how this went um, clearly. There, there are things uh, along the process that, again, also when you compare to, to other cases, not just in other national jurisdictions, but even at the, at the highly specialized international criminal court, right? Um, as regards witness security, um, issues that remain a problem, and I mean, we can talk about this for a long time, but it's probably in the in the very nature of the beast that 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 will 
uh, remain um, a, a difficult issue because we are talking about some of the most complex and and grave crimes you can you can imagine. But there are things that that we continue to to advocate for um, also in the Netherlands, including making sure that that the witnesses that we also work with and that we try to get involved in these cases um, and these cases rely heavily on witness testimony, as you know, that these witnesses feel comfortable. Um, and secure to participate, um, that they have access to a, to to legal representation, uh, to psychosocial support. Um, those are things that that we as an organization very much uh, advocate for, and and that we try to help uh, manage and and set up and provide. Um, but we do believe that some somewhat of a more of an effort uh, from from the state side in um, in providing this this kind of support, for example, concretely. Uh, to make uh, legal representation for for witnesses in these complex international crimes cases uh, available as a as a rule uh, as a state funded rule that's something that we we continue to advocate for yeah so just to explain um it it isn't right now so there is no legal aid for for these witnesses and like fritz mentioned the cases are very heavily based on these testimonies we don't do this only for syrian cases but also for uh, for other cases that we're working on we're going to move on to another uh, Syria-related uh, justice development. It's really a sense for me of, like they say with London buses, you know, you can see none and then suddenly three come along at once. So we also have in France some arrest warrants being issued by a judge there against Syria's president Bashar al-Assad, his brother Mahar al-Assad, and two other senior officials over the use of banned chemical weapons against civilians in Syria. And just to point out, we're going to do a, a full chemical weapons podcast uh, in the new year, because I think there's some really interesting developments going on that uh, Stephanie in her moonlighting as a Reuters correspondent has been uh, been covering as well. But let's uh, just start off with this stuff in France. Again, over to either of you. Should we start with you, Fritz? What's the case about? Who are the plaintiffs? Um, how has it come about? Yeah, before um, I start talking about that, just very quickly, there's another case that's going to trial in uh, France uh, in May 2024 that's already been uh, scheduled and dated against very high-ranking uh, officials, uh, among among them Jamal Hassan, former head of the, of the, the notorious Air Force Intelligence, Ali Mamluk, who really was the, or maybe still is the, the second most powerful person in the regime uh, heading the security services. And uh, they've been indicted and the trial is uh, scheduled for May next year in, in Paris. It'll likely be an in, in, in absentia trial. Yeah, I was going to ask, that will be in, in absentia, but it uh, looks like France is the place that, where things are, are happening. Part of that reason is that they have the option to go for in absentia trials, which which many other national jurisdictions don't, right? And um, that we can have another discussion on on whether that's a good thing or not. But it is happening, and we we do hear from our Syrian partners that it has a very strong uh, meaning meaning for them to be taken seriously. For the direct victims in this case, uh, we've met them in Paris. That's a really a development to 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 keep on the radar for May next year. Now uh, onto the chemical weapons case um both both of these cases have been in the making for years and years and years right the chemical weapons attacks that we're talking about are happened in august 2013 it's 10 years ago more than 10 years ago we started working on this case in 2017 
in a coalition of of NGOs, um, Syrian and and Western, and we uh, started building the case really from the very ground, just collecting information on the crimes, on the context of the crimes, and then slowly collecting information from witnesses, uh, from insider witnesses, to not only show how the crimes occurred, but also how they were organized, how these chemical weapons attacks um, as a state-run way of attacking uh, its own civilian population was uh, was managed. The cases were filed in three jurisdictions, in, in Germany first, and then in France and in Sweden. And the French have taken it uh, forward. Um, so have the Germans and the Swedes. They also opened uh, investigations. But the French have now publicly announced arrest warrants for Bashar and Maher al-Assad and two high officials of the um, chemical weapons um, development program uh, inside Syria. That is, of course, a huge victory for the survivors and the victims' families from those attacks where um, more than a thousand people died of gas in just a few hours um, in the morning of the 21st of August, 2013. I mean, I was involved in reviewing some of the imagery and video evidence in this case before we filed, and it was the hardest thing that I've probably done in my professional life. Uh, just looking at uh, what these gases did to those people, including the elderly and very small babies. Um, we were just expecting our first child at the time, and that that thing just um, broke my heart. It was it was very hard, and and I'm I'm just like I said, it's a, it's it's a victory for everyone that has worked so tirelessly on this case. That um, not only were these investigations opened, but these arrest warrants are now official. Let's talk about what what they mean. But the fact alone that this has happened is is massive. Also, let's just say that the it's not just us making the claims about the chemical attack. The OPCW, the Organization for the Prevention of Chemical Weapons, has found that Syria used sarin and chlorine gas in attacks. And, of course, Bashar al-Assad is uh, indicted as also his position as a commander of the armed forces. Hope, can I ask you, how do you think France is going to deal with the immunity of the of a head of state issue? Because a French court is not an international tribunal, and this is a tenet of international law that you have head of state immunity before national courts, usually. Yeah, Stephanie, good question. I think, you know, we all know that immunity of sitting heads of states cannot serve as a bar to prosecute by international courts, right? We've seen this with the uh, al-Bashir, but the question of whether personal immunity can prevent national jurisdictions from enforcing arrest warrants or cases has always kind of divided the international community. And like you said, I, I really think that this is the first time that no immunities for international crime principle has been applied in a national jurisdiction and not just against a high-level uh, official or high-level perpetrator, but against the uh, the sitting head of state Assad of, of a different nation. So I think when we talk about being creative, again, kind of reaching back to that or the political will, this is a really, really, really good example of, of that. I, I also suspect that this will be the biggest defense argument, uh, immunity. But to be honest, I, I have no idea how this will unfold. Again, I, I stay positive and I think that this is a, a good thing. You know, you know, Stephanie. The thing with this immunity question is, of course, we we don't know, and and we cannot know um, how the f the French investigative judges came to the conclusion that in this case, immunities will not bar them from even 
officially um, publishing these arrest warrants. I mean, these these individuals are now on the Interpol list, right? Um, yeah, so we don't know. It's it's the secrecy of the of the file, but um, what we can guess is is that the, the the very grave nature of these chemical weapons attacks. I mean, the norm, the international norm that was broken by uh, attacking your own population with with a sarin gas. That that as a as a violation of international law weighs so heavily and qualifies as as youth gogans that it breaks through that prohibition of investigating and prosecuting and putting on trial even heads of state, current heads of states. And that is, that is of course, a very exciting uh, development. Now, it may, it may not uphold, right? Let's be realistic. There is a whole process to still go through and uh, uh, let's see where it goes. At the same time, though, just around the same time, a, a group of Syrian civil society organizations have uh, called for a international chemical weapons tribunal to be established, right? You know, that brings us to the beginning of of, of this part of the discussion, which is if if that was to be uh, created, then immunities may may not be an issue um, anymore since it would be an, an internationally um, established tribunal and and how exactly that would work regarding immunities um, is, is, is another question, but it would make uh, prosecutions also of heads of states more likely. Um, and uh, I think in that sense, we should also see these various investigations happening at the same time in Germany, in Sweden, in France. The idea is that perhaps a solution to bringing all of that information together at some point is is such a chemical weapons tribunal in the future. That really seems like a good place to wrap up and to move on to our regular questions that we have uh, at the end. I'm really hesitant with both of you to ask you if there's anything that we haven't mentioned that you would like to mention, because I have the sense that there's another flood of stuff that you all want to get it, get in here. But, you know, is there anything? I mean, I mean, Janet, I have to say, I have to say, I will shamelessly plug my own podcast, The Syria Trials, right? In the second season, we, we go through a case, the Al-Halabi case, and I will just leave it at that. Everybody should should know about this case and how it's how it's developed. It's all in in season two, so we don't have to talk about it uh, here on the podcast. But it is oh boy, it is a it is an interesting case. Shameless plugging is absolutely acceptable, no problem at all. Thank you for that. Maybe we'll just move on to our last question that uh, we always ask, which is whether there's stuff that you have been listening to, or reading, or watching recently that uh, you would like uh, to to share with us hope what have you been been up to or something you do to switch off from this uh, this world that we're in i i have this really bad thing of reading books that also are about international crimes war crimes survivors um and my my partner always tells me not to take these books in my downtime or read them in my downtime or on vacation. So this time I, I have a book which is kind of personal to me. It's a really easy read that I'm reading. It's called The Bus Out of Moster. I have a, a very personal connection to the Balkans. I spent a lot of time there. And I also, in my, um, my spare time, I play handball. Um, and this book is actually about a team of young ladies being taken to the Netherlands specifically to flee the war um, under the the discard of of going to have to play a tournament, a handball team tournament in the Netherlands. So yeah, a little bit of a of an easy read, but also um, explaining the war in uh, in former Yugoslavia and uh, from the perspective of uh, young handball players. So it's uh, it's a good read. So Fritz, are you going to surprise us by 
picking something that isn't uh, reading legal files uh, deep into the night? <laughs> yes, actually, I have the same tendency, of course. I mean, I think most of your guests probably um, share that. I really try very hard since a couple of years to resist that. Which is difficult, very difficult. <laughs> very difficult. Um, but uh, I really I try. And one of the things that has worked for me lately, especially since the 7th of October and everything that has happened since, um, which has in many ways just left me more hopeless than, than I've ever been. And, and it's, you know, speechless uh, is, is another word that is, uh, has been in my head a lot. So I really try to get different things and beautiful things into my head. Um, and what, one of the things that's been working for me quite, quite nicely is, is poetry, sort of going, going, going back to poetry, which I hadn't read um, in, in a while. And, and there's this one poem that I, that I recently really enjoyed, and I keep reading it back, um, maybe because it relates a little bit to uh, justice, <laughs> but it's a very different take on it. And it's called The Just by uh, Jorge Luis Borges. And it gives the reader a very beautiful uh, perspective on what really actually in the end matters um, in our life and in this world. Um, I suggest everybody who, who needs a bit of a shot of, of beauty um, to, to read it. Thank you. We'll put a link up on the uh, website to that as well. And uh, a picture of the bus out of Mostar, which sounds like, uh, yeah, nice read. So nice to nice to have something a bit positive as well. Thank you both very much for, for your time. Thank you. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Before we sign off, we have to say that uh, podcast next year about chemical weapons will, of course, also deal with the call for the establishment of the Chemical Weapons Tribunal, which uh, I reported on and spoke to some very, very impressive witnesses and people trying to make that happen. So that is uh, upcoming in the new year. But thank you both so much for your time. This was Asymmetrical Haircuts, your international justice podcast. Created and presented by Janet Anderson and Stephanie van den Berg. This episode was produced in partnership with justiceinfo.net, an independent site covering justice effort for mass violence. Music is by audionautics.com and you can find show notes and everything about the podcast on asymmetricalhaircuts.com. This show is available on every major podcast service, so please subscribe, give us a rating and spread the word. Thank you.